sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, we're back on our regular sporadic uh, recording schedule. Aaron, uh, you and I, life is just, life is always unpredictable, but it seems just to have gone insane, hasn't it, in the last couple of months? It has been a crazy few months. As the, <laughs> as the pandemic winds down for everybody and they feel normal, we have had new abnormalities. Oh, man. Yeah. And if recovery is about, you know, learning to just kind of go with the flow, living life on life's terms, uh, drawing on support from our friends to face life's challenges as they come and resisting the urge to uh, try to do some kind of end run around our difficulties or to medicate the pain. That it feels like uh, you and I both have had a lot of practice doing that in the last few weeks. Yeah. So give us the update. I think when last we heard you were waiting for test results that were really yeah. scary for Allie. Yeah. 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 They, yeah. They yeah. Came in. You got them. We got them. We got them. I mean, we were just uh, hanging by our fingernails. Uh, you know, waiting on results of a biopsy. We had expected to do a lung biopsy and would call in instead for a bone marrow biopsy. Uh, and, uh, you know, waiting on a verdict for bone cancer, which is just terrifying. And uh, I'll tell you, th this is a sec, this is another order of magnitude when it comes to intensity. When we're talking about a life threatening, a potentially life threatening, uh, difficulty. And it's, you know, th those are the kind of challenges that Allie and I are going to face with increasing frequency as we age. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be getting easier with each encounter. At any rate, uh, you know, thank God the news came back that uh, the sample that was obtained during the biopsy was benign. And Allie doesn't have bone cancer. It's, it's a weird thing, though, because that's mm -hmm. like, yay, celebration. But I remember when I was getting tested for something that they were sure was cancer, uh, the doctor was talking to the nurses right outside the door where I could still hear him saying incredibly uh, frightening things, which I thought, come on, do you really not know how thick your own doors are in your office? Yeah, Jack. Yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to wait, I think, a few weeks to find out. Mm. And I remember I took the kids to Universal Studios. Because I'm like, I want to have this day because I'm, I'm going to get the results back in the next couple of days and everything yeah. change after that. Right, right, right. And they ended up calling while I was at Universal Studios waiting in line for the Simpsons Bride. <laughs> which made the day a lot better for sure. But yeah. you'd think everything would just be better. But I know my brain couldn't quite wrap around the idea that everything was okay. So you get this news, and what happens with your brain? Are you just like, oh, good, everything's okay. We're moving on with life. Yeah, no. I mean, there was this moment of elation. Uh, it probably lasted, you know, a few hours, just enormous relief. And then what I think, I think we got the delayed stress response. I think it's the kind of the, the, the post-traumatic stress 
Uh, I think, you know, we worked so hard to hold it together while we were waiting for a week for test results. And then, you know, we got the good news. And then I think all of that suppressed and repressed uh, stress kind of came barreling in. And, uh, you know, oddly enough, I, I think uh, Allie has battled anxiety a little bit more since we got the good news than during that difficult week while we were waiting for the news. Yeah. Strange how the brain works, man. Strange. So what, uh, what do you think that is? Is it, I mean, you called it the, the form of PTSD. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, I think, yeah, I, I think that, you know, we coped and Allie, you know, I'm a passenger. I mean, I love my wife and I'm with her in this thing, but this is very, very personal to her, more personal even than it is to me. So, um, and I feel a little bit hypocritical, like telling her story, but my sense, you know, as her husband, partner, friend, life companion is that she was, um, you know, holding it together as very best she could and leaning on God and doing a lot of praying. And, and we were talking and not talking. We distracted ourselves a lot during that week while we were waiting on the news. Uh, we watched an awful lot of uh, Netflix and we talked about a lot of other things. And we didn't talk a lot about, you know, what might actually be going down because that just seemed too terrifying. Uh, and then when we got the news that, uh, you know, that she, that she doesn't have bone cancer. Now uh, all of these unfelt feelings and unexpressed fears were, could safely come to the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if that is actually how PTSD works. All I know is that, uh, you know, the week after we got the news was, you know, well, not as difficult. Certainly, I mean, it's a, it's a, I, it's apples and oranges, but it was not the nirvana that I expected. You know, that's all behind us and it's clear sailing. Now we still have some crap to deal with. And you know what? Uh, you know, I think this is very, very, very common. It's a part of recovery. I think it's something that, that, uh, you know, wives deal with in betrayal trauma. You know, after the nightmare, the official nightmare ends and husband is in recovery and he's doing well and he's making progress, then all of those conversations that they were not able to have while he was acting out. All the fears that were not acknowledged, the questions that weren't asked. Uh, now it's safe to ask them. Uh, and, you know, now those feelings come up and th that can be, you know, I know that was Allie's story too. You know, those, those first, you know, for me, early recovery was a blissful experience uh, because I was finally free of the nightmare. But for Allie, now that I was able to talk freely about what I had been doing, um, and you know, now that the denial period had come to an end, and we were in the process of excavating, you know, those hellish twenty years, and and actually coming clean right. with, uh, you know, my degree of infidelity, and you know, starting to own the emotional damage that I had done mostly through neglect. Uh, man, that was a tough, tough, tough time for Allie. And because it was tough for her, 
It was also tough for me, partly because I didn't understand it. I thought, I don't, why should you be upset? It's over. This is great. We're on a good path now. Uh, I didn't understand what she was going through. Uh, and so at times when I could have been much more supportive and helpful and understanding, I was trying to push her through a process quicker than is, you know, healthy and safe for her to go through it. I grew impatient. She grew impatient. It was a tough time. Yeah. It's, it's over, but it's not over. Yeah. And, and over, but to, not over. We want to acknowledge that the husbands who are listening, who also have experienced betrayal trauma, also feel it just like the wives. There you go. Um, and yeah. And thanks for saying that, Aaron. Um, yes, that's the world we live in. Yeah. Well, my friend, you're, you're also talking about the purposeful conversations. I think the blindsided moments for people when they get triggered, um, maybe because they know where something happened and they end up in that part mm. of town or stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, that can be really hard for the person that experienced the trauma and also really hard for the other person because maybe you're years through working things out. Yeah. And then you feel like, what are we, why are we back here again? Yeah. Um, so it's over, but it's not over and work continues. But we get to hear a story about a guy who figured out how to do start his work. It's a mm -hmm. great story. I'm excited for people to get to hear this. Oh, man. We got a great guest today in Seth Haynes. And uh, yeah, wonderful story. I'm not going to spoil it. We're just going to. Uh, as soon as we come back, we're going straight into the interview. So stick with us. We'll be back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Yeah, welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. We are so fortunate and honored to have as our guest this week uh, the author of a book that I only very recently discovered, thanks to Sean Parks. Thank you, Sean, for setting that up. Uh, the book is Coming Clean. The author is Seth Haynes. And I, I want to tell you, I've read a lot of recovery and sobriety memoirs. I would put this one at the very top. Seth, thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. It's my my pleasure to be here, man. Okay, well, Aaron and I are in Middle Tennessee. You're not all that far away, I imagine, in Arkansas. Are you in Arkansas at this yeah, moment? Yeah, I live in northwest Arkansas, so I don't know where in Middle Tennessee you are, but we're five hours from Memphis, so what is that, another seven hours from Nashville? Uh, seven yeah, hours total from Nashville? Seven hours total from Nashville. Yeah, we're just south of Nashville. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I have not yet finished your book because I got it so late. I'm about two thirds of the way through it, so I still don't know how the story ends, and I don't, I don't know whether I want to know how the story, how that <laughs> part of the story ends. Uh, but 
What, <laughs> well, this will make a great podcast. Right. <laughs> is he alive or is he not? <laughs> I know your story. I'm worried about Titus. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, all right. So I wasn't uh, privy to what was happening today, of course, because that's mm-hmm. the, the charm of my life. So, yeah. Why would we give, tell you? You're only co-hosting the podcast. Why Seth, would we let you know anything, Aaron? Give me the story yeah. that led to you writing the fabulous book about <laughs> you and Titus, whoever the hell he is. Yeah. So he's my kid, man. Whoever the hell he is, he's my Sorry. It's okay. Wait, let me let me say it again. So, what led you to write this fantastic book about you and the precious Titus? Oh, there you go. That's better. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, um, I'll give you a little bit of my backstory and my history. Um, you know, I was raised um, in a. Pre- I was raised in a you know pretty evangelical upbringing. Um, pretty much always sort of fed the line, uh, not the lie, but the line. Um, that, you know, if you just pray a little bit harder, read scripture a little bit better, study a little bit more, you know, be faithful, do the right things, you know, things will sort of work out. And the truth is that was pretty much true for my whole life. I mean, um, into my early thirties, things just kind of had always worked out. In fact, before we get to the crux of the story, you know, months probably before things started to unravel for me. Um, I was actually talking to my mom at one point and I said, you know, I'm pretty damn lucky because um, things just kind of work out for me. And and I said that with no hint of remorse or guilt or privilege or anything, just like, hey, this kind of is what it is. Um, our youngest son, so we have four boys, Titus is our youngest. And, um, you know, t- Titus was... Uh, he was like sort of the last ditch effort for a little girl. And then uh, when it was a boy, we were like, Oh yeah, so glad we have all four boys. And you know, everything seemed great and everything was good. And we were excited. And about six months in um, Titus stopped gaining weight. You know, and if there, there are a couple things babies are supposed to do, maybe three, right. They're supposed to eat, they're supposed to poop and they're supposed to gain weight. And so at about six months in when Titus wasn't gaining weight, uh, the doctors got kind of nervous, and we started running tests. Um, probably seven or eight months in, he actually started actively losing weight. And then right before his first birthday, about a month and a half, he actually started throwing up. He couldn't keep his food down. And so uh, Amber and I, my wife, Amber and I, were, were rushed to uh, Arkansas Children's Hospital in Little Rock, and we got there um, late one evening, um, and the doctors got to work pretty quickly because he wasn't holding any food down. So put him on an IV to make sure he was hydrated, and then uh, began the, the process of trying to drip feed him. And, um, you know, again, like drip feeds would go into his stomach, an hour later he'd throw it all up. And so everybody got really nervous, and um, the first few days in the hospital, it was a real flurry of activity, and it was, you know, taking him to uh, to MRIs and to CAT scans and, um, you know, all these different procedures where, you know, one in which uh, we were taken into the room, and I had to pin his shoulders to the, you know, to the table. And they forced this blue goo down him, and then they they took this like roving eye sort of thing and went all up and down his body and pictured uh, his insides while I was you know holding down a writhing almost one year old on the table, um, 
and it, you know, it's the memories like that of just the, the trauma of that moment. Um, yeah. Can we, know, can we pause on that? Cause you've yeah. given a lot of vivid details and I can't think of anything more hopeless and terrifying feeling than that. Like what, what was, what was the journey inside you at that point? Oh, it's, it's a complete shit show, man. I don't know how else to put it. Um, you know, there's no way to deal with the loss of a child. And a step back from that, there's no way to deal with the impending loss of a child, right? When you, when you think um, that you might lose a kid, your, uh, you know, internal mooring is just gone. I mean, it's, it's just absolute and utter chaos. In fact, it's really only been the last year um, that I've been able to tell this story without breaking down. Like every time I tell it, I used to for seven, eight years, I would, I would cry because it was such a difficult time and it just kind of puts you right back, you know, in that moment. And, and I think it's probably like that with anything. I mean, with, with the loss of a child, uh, the impending loss of a child, the impending loss of a spouse, anybody who's really close to you, that sort of internal chaos is just, it just creates havoc, you know? Hmm. So for us, I mean, we, we were in the hospital going through that havoc, and there was a moment when the doctor came in with this really great GI, um, but he came in and he said, you know, we don't know what else to do, and so we're going to make him comfortable, um, which, and if you've ever watched any, you know, medical show mm-hmm. on television or movie, like, you know exactly what that means, right? And right. And, and so... You know, there's this moment where like the walls close in, everything sort of goes blank. You start, you start to sort of hear the humming in your ears or whatever, um, and you know you're in the crisis. That is the moment when you know, oh, this is really, really dark. And so I picked up the phone and I called uh, someone who lived in Little Rock where we were, and I said, I need you to bring me an Nalgene bottle of Gin Stat, like right now. And within 30 minutes, I had the Nalgene bottle of gin and I went out to the, uh, they had this, this ice machine, you know, Sonic ice, you guys are from the South, you know, Sonic ice. Oh Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. 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 Beautiful ice. It's like the only good thing about Arkansas children's hospital. (laughs) If you're there with your kid is they have these awesome ice machines that have that kind of ice, you know? So, so I, feel I, like, I, I, I really need to find out what this means. I'm not from the South and I have no idea how ice is special. Oh, it's totally special. It's like this little perfectly cubed. It's like the best crunching ice in the world. If you're an ice eater, you, you got to find this stuff. Okay. If you can't get it. Okay, good. So yeah, I, I, I mean, I just put it on my to-do list. It's done. All it's right. It's a bucket list item. So I so go you've got and your I, gin and your ice. I got my gin in my ice and I pour the ice, you know, straight, no chaser. I pour the gin straight, no chaser into this big, you know, essentially styrofoam bucket of ice. And I just drink and I drink and I drink. And man, I'd always been, uh, I say always, you know, after 21, 22, I'd been a pretty good social drinker. I'm 6'2", almost 6'3". Uh, all of my genetic material comes from, um, you know, German stock or Irish stock. Um, like God made me to do one thing really well. And that one thing is drink. It's like my special talent. Um, so I was always able to kind of (laughs) drink socially and get away with it and nobody would really know. And I could kind of hold more than other people. And, um, but that was the moment in the hospital when I decided I don't want to feel anything anymore. Um, if God is exists in any form or fashion, 
uh, he's capricious and, and, and mean and angry. Like, why do this to a kid? And I didn't know how to square that with my theological background. Um, and so I just drank and drank and drank and just decided for the next year, that's what I was going to do. I was going to drink. And that's what I did. So uh, you were able to kind of hide that before. Were you still able to hide it with your genetic amazingness? Um, I didn't really care to hide it anymore is the truth. Um, I think, you know, so Nate, I know Nate was a little bit concerned about the end of the story. Um, so I'll go ahead and break it to you. Uh, a doctor came onto the floor a couple days later, a new doctor. So our doctor had rotated off a new doctor rotated on. And he said, I have this one idea. And if this one idea works, which was to, to slowly drip feed him, uh, actually at a caloric deficit, but to like expand his stomach, then maybe we had enough time to, to turn the corner. And that's what happened. So when we were finally released from the hospital, um, we were still really touch and go. I mean, he still had a feeding tube and um, we were still drip feeding him every day. And so my world for that next year was really dark and really busy. And so was Amber's. You know, we were constantly at a doctor's office or I was constantly taking care of the kids or, um, and whatever. And, and nobody really blamed me for drinking. Um, so it was never really an issue after that. You know, when you're going through a dark season and you're over drinking, nobody's like, Hey man, lay off the whiskey. You know, they're like, Oh, I'm really sorry about what you're going through. So did that, Um, did that include your wife that she knew you were drinking a lot more, but she was letting it go? She did. Now, there are a couple things, too, that I'll tell you. And I think it's probably this way with any addictive personality or, or addictive tendency. Um, I was doing things to hide. Like, let's be clear about that, right? So sure. when when I would come home, you know, I would pour drinks for, for Amber and for me. Um, and I would conveniently pour a double, right? And then when she would go back to the restroom, I would sneak really quickly off and and top off my drink. And so there was a lot of scalding my drinks. You know, there was a lot of topping off drinks, things like this. So there was a fair amount of hiding how much I was drinking. Amber did say at one point, um, I'm afraid that God has something for you and that you are ruining it by drinking too much. Like, do you think you should take off some time? And of course, you know what I said. Like you guys know after school specials, right? Like I said what every guy says in every after school special, which is I can quit whenever I want, which probably should have been a red flag, but for whatever reason it wasn't. Yeah. 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 So when did you get to the point where you said, oh, I, I can't lie about this to myself and others anymore? So for about a year, more a little bit over a year, I drank like that. Now, the truth is, you know, you, you don't ever arrive at an alcohol problem without having like staged it appropriately, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. I just didn't wake up in Little Rock and then all of a sudden have a, have a drinking problem. The truth is, like if you look at the AA guidelines, I probably had a functional drinking problem going into the hospital before, you know, before we even started with this mess because – um, and I don't remember the exact count anymore, but you know, there's a there's a a number. If you have you know two drinks a day or whatever, five days a week, then you might consider yourself having a drinking problem. Well, I was definitely doing that, right? So I probably already had a drinking problem, but um, as far as like a volitional, like screw it all, I'm just going to drink it away. Like I did that for another year and a half, and um, I found myself because I'm an attorney by trade. I found myself. Uh, speaking at a conference on quote unquote human care, 
And I was speaking on um, the ethics of international adoption. And to cut, uh, to make a long story really, really short, it was a really good group of friends. And we uh, all took down this house. Uh, we, we, it was kind of a party house. We had a great time. And the second night of the conference, I woke up and I was wicked hungover because I had stayed up to like three in the morning drinking tequila, which again, if you're ever up at three o'clock drinking tequila, you know that it's a problem. You have a problem. Uh, just, you know, litmus test there for anyone who's listening. Um, and I remember, you know, this, this conference was hosted at this Methodist church in Austin and the doors of this uh, Methodist church opened and um, it was kind of like one of those moments where all the shards of light hit your eyes and tear your brain apart because you're so hungover, like every light hurt. And as the door shut and I saw um, the, the silhouette sort of take shape, it was this woman named Heather Keene. And Heather was from Minnesota. She was a, a friend, a writer. She's not the Heather King writer, for those of you who might know uh, Heather King, the writer of books, different Heather King. Um, but she was a writer and she was a recovering alcoholic. And the minute that that door closed, it was almost like hearing, you can take care of this now or things can get really bad. And I walked across the foyer to her. And instead of saying good morning, I said, how did you know you have a drinking, you had a drinking problem? And she looked at me with these like kind mm. blue eyes, the piercing eyes. And she just said, you know, don't you? And that was it. That was the minute. Wow. Wow. So, Seth, uh, by the way, let me just say this. Uh, not only is yours a compelling story, you are an extremely gifted writer. I can tell there's a lot of craftsmanship to your writing. You are poetic. Uh, it's actually, I, I have this little syndrome where I start to get jealous and then feel inferior whenever I read somebody who writes that beautifully. Um, it's, it's a level of craftsmanship that is seldom seen in the Christian space. Hmm. Um, and uh, also you bring to your story, to this memoir, which is uh, written kind of, uh, it's like the, the, the a 90 day, uh, the journal of your first 90 days in, re uh, in recovery, essentially. Yeah. 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 Written with such uh, courageous vulnerability, such blistering honesty and, uh, and what I love is in the front, and you say this really isn't. This isn't about drinking. It's not about alcoholism. This is about pain, right? Yeah, yeah. So you went to see a therapist to get some help with the drinking problem. Yeah. Um, and now, and I love the way throughout the book you weave, you go back and forth in time, and we learn about your grandmother who laid down the drink. Mm -hmm. We learn about your your wonderful grandfather who. Loved that gin and tonic till the day he died, right? That's right. Uh, we learn about your childhood uh, asthma. And, yeah. And I have, I've taken, I have been to many a tent meeting to a miracle healing service myself. My dad yeah. was a Pentecostal preacher. Uh, I've dragged my children to them, uh, to my regret, actually, these days. Mm -hmm. uh, but you had, so you had. So you're dealing with a present disappointment with God. Oh, yeah. yeah. Here's the other thing. You also, you're a, in addition to being an attorney, you are an active Christian layman, worship leader, in your, yep. worship leader in your church, yep. small group leader. Yep. Uh, and 
professing and confessing uh, and doing your best to live a faith about which, whether you acknowledge it or not, you are harboring some inner doubts because of early disappointment. And now all That's of right. this disappointment just blooms when yeah. – the other thing is just, just stopped my heart was you talked about – at this point, when you're looking at Titus in his desperate situation, and you stopped praying, yeah, 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 couldn't do it anymore, right? Yeah, so there's a lot. There's a lot in that. I think, um, in fact, if there's one thing that I talk about more than anything else these days, it's pain. It's yeah. not drinking. Yeah, it's not gambling or porn or whatever. It's pain. Yeah, um, and there's a large, a, a long reason for that. And like you said, so so I was. Uh, a very severe asthmatic growing up. My mother, in fact, did everything that she knew how to do uh, to, to sort of find a cure for my asthma. I was like the sort of the blue fingernails uh, asthmatic when the attacks would hit. She went so far as to take me to an iridologist uh, in the early 80s, which is this kind of hippy-dippy doctor who looks at your irises and then tells you you know, what you need to change in your diet or your lifestyle, mm -hmm. your meditative practices to sort of cure you. And I mean, she went all out for everything, looking for everything. God bless her too uh, for it. Um, but she took me to this faith healing service and there was this, this pastor, we all know the trope. And in my mind, he fit the trope, you know, the slick suit, the slicked back hair. Um, and at the end of this healing service, she takes me forward and he, he sort of leads me through this, this miracle healing prayer moment and when he's finished, he says, you know, do you feel anything? And of course, you know, you're six years old. You have all the faith in the world. You don't know doubt at six. Um, and I didn't really feel anything. And I remember just looking at him and being like, okay, you're an adult. Sure, I guess. And I mean, it couldn't have been, you know, a month, maybe two weeks later, you know, I'm having asthma attacks again, just as severe. And so as I was growing up, what I tried to do uh, in reaction to that sort of Pentecostal moment um, that didn't work for me, was I tried to adopt a faith that said, okay, well, outside of the word of God, all miracles have ceased. Everything has stopped. And that was a convenient way to say, like, if God didn't heal me in my six-year-old faith, then my faith must not have been enough. So there has to be some other explanation. Mm -hmm. And the other explanation needs to be that God doesn't work. Well, that's a, a, a real problem when you are in your early 30s all of a sudden and you're reminded that your faith isn't good enough. It's never been a good, good enough and that your theology said that says that God stopped intervening and now your son is 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 in dire straits. I mean, the only solution to that, you know, the only theological solution or the only outflow of that theology is, oh, God doesn't care. He's turned his back on us and he's walked away. He's created us, turned his back on us and walked away. Um, and I'm sure, you know, I'm no theologian and you guys probably know way more theology than I do, but that is the natural outflow of that. And so this deep, deep, deep pain really set in in my own life. And it was the pain of an absent God. It was the pain, like everything that I had tried to build to distract myself from the fact that God was absent, all of a sudden sort of crumbled and vanished. And here I am face to face with the reality that if there is a God, he's walked away. Uh, and I don't think I'm the first person to say that. Oh my you know? gosh, you are, you are talking uh, questions and problems everybody has had forever. But yeah. I'm curious, 
I don't think information uh, takes root and helps us in our moment of pain and suffering. Yeah. However, I think that the evangelical church has done a horrible job of uh, giving suffering and pain its right place in our understanding of God. So I'm curious with what you've learned now over the last seven or eight years, what do you wish you had heard as a young man that would have started to lay a foundation to understand that moment and the God that still loves you perfectly, but there's still going to be this pain? Is, is, are there some things that you've learned that would have helped you? Yeah, I mean, well, so first of all, I was raised in a tradition that skipped Lent, and we're in Lent right now as we mm-hmm. record this, right? So I was in a tradition that skipped Lent and went straight to Easter. Right. You know, everything was about um, redemption. Everything was about making things right. Um, everything was about, you know, on a Sunday morning, uh, was about the, the, the glorification of heaven. Like when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Everything was about rejoicing. And we sort of, whether this was intentional or not, sort of skipped the everyday difficulty of pain. And in fact, we kind of skipped that in Jesus's life. Like even Christian as we were, you know, we often didn't talk about the pain of Jesus. And, and listen, man, if you look at the gospel and you like, we, I was just reading something in the gospels yesterday where Jesus literally disappears and goes to be at a quote, lonely place so that he could pray. So he goes from the pain of the crush of a crowd to the pain of loneliness just so he could pray and, and, and get reconnected. But the word lonely is still a painful word. And I wish I would have been taught growing up that, you know, life is full of pain. It is full of beauty. It is full of joy. It is full of amazing moments. But every day is a potential for pain. And every day that Christ woke up was a potential for pain. And, and in that potential for pain, the solution is not to numb the pain. The solution isn't to use or to drink or to peep or to whatever. The solution is, is to get to the lonely place, to quiet yourself, to be still, as the psalmist says, Psalm 46 maybe, uh, be still, and, and to really attach to the only one who understands, knows, appreciates, lived, walked through pain, and can companion with you in it with zero neuroses. Because the truth is, I mean, outside of a, of a damn good therapist and maybe a good spiritual director, um, most people aren't equipped to walk through pain with you. Um, and so you need those spiritual directors, those therapists, You need, and you need that, that sort of personal connection with the God and the creator who understands and lived a life of pain. How I wish you, I would have known that. How, how do you think our modern world, and I'd be curious for both of your answers on this, like for thousands of years, the infant mortality rate was astronomical. So the death of a child was, though it came with grief and suffering, was a part of normal life. But here we have so much technology to try to keep us from pain or mask pain that the version of Jesus we want to be transferred, formed into is anything but a person despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one mm-hmm. from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Well, mm. there's a description of Jesus, but that's not the Jesus I want the Spirit to transform me into. 
But how does modern life and, and the way we deal with suffering in such a scientific and medical way keep us from accepting the basic, obvious realities you just said? Because what you said is no duh shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I there's there's a, I actually wrote a second book that sort of un, unpacks a little bit of this and talks a little bit about this. It's called The Book of Waking Up. And in The Book of Waking Up, I actually look at the neurological realities of our addictive complexes, right? So, so, um, and there's, there are different neurochemicals involved and I'm not a doctor, but what I will tell you is that alcohol releases similar types of neurochemicals to numb pain, um, as, you know, sex, as porn, as, um, you know, eating, as shopping, um, and what the neuroscientists will tell you is that in a very, very real way, there's a, a, a doctor named doc, Dr. Gabor Mate who, who writes about addiction. And what he says is when we look at brain scans, when somebody says they feel emotional pain, the brain centers that relate to physical pain light up just as if they had hit their finger you know, with a hammer or, or cut themselves. The same brain centers light up when you talk about emotional pain. And so when we talk about emotional pain, we're not being metaphorical, but we're being very literal. And what we know is that drinking, uh, porn, sex, um, eating, shopping, all of these things, gambling even to some degree, can mute those, those centers, those, those lit up centers. Um, they, they you know, put us to sleep. They anesthetize us. Right. And and so the job that we have is really to stay awake to the pain and to reach out to the only one who can sort of carry us, uh, carry us through the pain. But the, the problem is and this is what I write about a lot because, I, you know, I, I, it frustrates the hell out of me, if I'm being <laughs> completely honest, is that, you know, the corporate consumeristic structure of modern society has a deep incentive to keep us more and more and more addicted and to not deal with our pain. And we have more access mm-hmm. now to more intoxicating beverages than we've ever had, to more sugar and fat laden foods right. than we've ever had, to more bodies than we could ever see or sleep with in a night. Uh, we are jacked. Our brains are jacked with more intoxicating substances that keep us from actually dealing with our pain. Yeah. What, yeah. Are, your, what are your thoughts, Nate, about how the modern world and Medicine is keeping us from facing. Oh yeah, yeah. I, no defect. Oh yeah, I I couldn't agree more. One thing that strikes me is that uh, although you never name your therapist, at least not in the as much, as far as I've read in the book, um, you found a knowledgeable, experienced, and empathetic companion who was able to walk with you back toward the pain. Now he can't experience the pain for you. Yeah. But he can – I'm wondering, you know, as an addict, as a proud guy and also as a guy conditioned by shame, I always want to undertake uh, healing and recovery alone. Um, yeah, yeah. You're right? Uh, yeah. But, but without the guidance, encouragement, comfort, and, and, and I have found in recovery the example of others uh, – I, it's not something I could do on my own. How how important was the role of your therapist, and how important were the, were your friends, Heather's and other, Heather and others, 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Especially in those first 90 days. Yeah. Critical. I mean, uh, absolutely critical. Um, so from a therapeutic perspective, and this is kind of interesting how the book actually came about was, you know, um, my therapist, I was, you know, as we were talking, through this issue, these issues in my life. Um, what he said is you're obviously a writer first and a speaker second, because everything you're saying on my couch is like word soup. I have no idea what you're talking about. So I need you to actually go and journal through, I, you know, find a place every day, spend an hour, uh, think, you know, he didn't say pray at the time because I think he was probably concerned that I didn't have any faith journal through, write through, write all this down as creative as you can so that I can understand what you're going through. Um, and so, you know, there was that piece simultaneously, Heather was actually saying, you know, cause I was terrified I would never write again. And she said, I think what you're going to find mm-hmm. is you're going to write more clearly, um, with more power and with more creativity than you ever have. So you, you know, just start writing. And so I combine these two experiences. So Heather and my therapist, whose name is Ryan, um, you know, they were both critical and instrumental really in my journey of, of writing this all down. But, but even more than just the journey of writing it down, um, Heather, uh, was in my ear constantly telling me like, you can do this. You know, she'd been sober a good long while. And, mm. and she said, listen, if, if I can do this and I'm kind of a screw up, you can totally do this. Um, and so just that constant encouragement. Um, and in fact, there was a moment about a year in. Um, so this is like a full year into not having any drinks whatsoever. And I wanted to burn it down. I was like two days away from my one year anniversary. And I thought, <laughs> golly, man. <laughs> Like, what's after this? I got to go for the rest of the damn life? I know that one. Oh, it's terrible. It's It's a terrible feeling. And she she actually said to me, like, oh, hey, by the way, this is really common at the one-year mark. And it was just like the, oh, no shame. This is just my brain being my brain. Okay, I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And in in the same way, you know, Ryan did the same thing. He just constantly said to me, you know, there was a moment on his couch where I said, I don't think I want to kill myself but I don't want to be here anymore. And so hmm. if I just kind of disappeared or if something happened, I think that would be okay. And I feel crazy for saying that. And he just laughed, which I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to do, but he uh, laughed and he said, <laughs> man, listen, everybody that comes into my uh, office in a moment of crisis says that you are not crazy. And so I think it's just that constant iteration of people who have, relational equity with you or people who have real therapeutic insight and knowledge saying you're not crazy. Yeah. Your body is doing what your body does for a reason. Um, I'll help you, you know, I'll help walk through this with you. No shame, no guilt. Let's understand the brain. Let's understand what happens in pain and let's walk through it. And dude, that was so huge for me. And, and frankly, I don't yeah. think a pastor or a priest would be as well equipped to walk through that with me. Not most. I mean, I'm sure there's some, but not most. Yeah. Would you say that uh, one of the payoffs for uh, this journey has been uh, a change, a positive change and improvement in your spiritual life? How has this tweaked your spiritual experience? Yeah, I mean, it it totally shifted it. So now... um, and I think, you know, p- part of it, I was probably already in that shift, I, mm-hmm. I imagine. Um, and this was probably a catalyst for it. 
you know, I was raised, like I said, in a very evangelical church, but I was also raised in Catholic school. So I had these really, and my grandparents were Episcopalian on one side and on the other side, they were Church of Christ. So I had this really weird melting pot of theology. But, but the thing that had always drawn me to the Catholic church was the sort of contemplative, imaginative walk with with Jesus in the sort of contemplative tradition of that, and I think what this really did was just sort of kick me in the butt and and put me on that on that road of like the only way through this is to really spend time contemplating, imagining, sitting with uh, Jesus as you as you go through. It's just like thinking about Jesus as a companion instead of necessarily a, a, an implement of salvation, you know, which is also true. It's also a facet, but thinking of it as a companion. Um, and there was a really distinct moment. I, I do write about this in Coming Clean where I had put off praying. I had finally kind of started reading the scriptures again. And Amber actually was at Mayo Clinic um, with Titus, had taken him to Mayo. And I had the rest of the boys and it was late at night. And I was in bed and I was reading the scriptures and for whatever reason, for the first time I prayed, God heal Titus. I hadn't prayed that in a year. And I heard almost, yeah. it wasn't audibly, but I heard no, at least not the way you think. And I was, I was a little bit pissed about it, you know, like, why would I pray this? And then I would hear this. The first thing I hear from God at all in a year and a half is no. Um, and then I immediately got this, this impression of, well, like, but at least we're talking, (laughs) like you don't get what you want, but at least we're talking again. Um, and that was the moment I think that sort of opened up my eyes to the fact that like, we, we really are on a spiritual journey with a companion. Um, and it's changed everything. And I'm not Mm. saying it's made everything easy. Um, it hasn't made my choices around what my relationship with, with anything, you know, whether it's food or alcohol or whatever uh, the thing is, uh, it hasn't made it any easier um, necessarily, but it has given me a companion. And, and yeah, I, I don't know, man, it just, it, it seems like it's opened up the relational aspect, even when sometimes it just feels distant and cold and dry. That still happens. I'm still human. Man, that is another lesson we don't learn how to face the no. Yeah. Right when you said that, I thought, well, of course, Jesus is your companion. He prays, Father, let this cup pass, mm-hmm. and it just moves on to the next scene. But there was an answer there. There was yeah. an answer from the Father, and the answer was, I love you, son. No. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And I actually write about that in Coming Clean, that exact moment in the garden. And it, it is that no moment. Um, and, and after that moment, we still see Jesus using the Father language. He, he He's not, I mean, he's maybe he's mad. I don't know. I'm not Jesus, but, uh, despite disappointment or the no, the divine, no, he still carries on and call and says, father, 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 you know, and, and goes so far in the height of his pain is to say, father, forgive these guys. They don't know what they're doing. They're doing the best they know how. Um, so throughout the whole passion of Christ, what we see is this idea of like constant attachment, constant companionship, constant turning into, um, uh, proper, proper attachment, um, in the middle of pain. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we know it as fathers, good fathers say no and cause their children to suffer all the time mm-hmm. because they know more. But man, when you're the kid who wants the thing and you get the no, you don't have the perspective to know anything except that your dad is an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
And it feels that way sometimes. And it still, I mean, I don't know if you guys feel this way. I don't know, Nate, if you feel this way, but I mean, sometimes I still get pissed. Like, why do I have to constantly struggle with uh, the same thought for 15 years? Or why do I have to constantly, like, it's, it's the prayer, like, remove the thorn. The thorn why, is, why in the hell is the thorn still there? Just freaking take it away. And it's not taken away. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it, it's a struggle still. Yeah, yeah. And the glorious hope is we'll all be dead soon, so it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Who's off? Well, Seth, uh, let me just say again, thank you for um, sharing that journal with the rest of us. It, it's been uh, a huge encouragement and inspiration to me. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough to our listeners. The book is coming clean and the sequel, which I'm now going to go out and get, uh, that's waking up. Is that the second title? The book of waking up. Yeah. Book it's of waking the up. book of waking up, experiencing the divine love that reorders a life. Wow. Wow. For our listeners who want to follow you, uh, connect with you, what's the best way that they can connect? Uh, probably sethhaines.com, my website. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a Substack newsletter. Uh, but if you sign up on my website, you'll be added to that list. And then I'm on uh, Twitter at Seth Haynes, although I'm kind of off for Lent. And I'm on Instagram yeah. at Seth Haynes, although I just do photography there. So, But you can still find me there. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's been so great to talk with you. Thank you so much for finding the time, Seth. And uh, I look forward to talking with you again sometime in the future. I'd love it. I'd love it. All right. Listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. We are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Don't get a lot of conversations about suffering in the evangelical world. Uh, they don't sell that well. Uh, at least uh, the popular impression they don't sell. I, I have a feeling there is a huge untapped market for this kind of, of honesty. I find it tremendously encouraging to know that I'm not the only one. Allie and I are not the only ones traveling through... Uh, you know, trauma and looking at the potential for disaster and living on the edge and uh, and at the same time wondering where the hell God is and is this whole thing maybe something I made up. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that Seth talks about so well is, you know, his, his own experience with uh, doubt and apathy during these years. Really, really yeah. good stuff. I found it very encouraging. We have that we have to be able to say it. I, yeah. I as you know, must in a, a suffering buff. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I think. <laughs> I mean, I think we have to address it because I believe it is one of, if not the most unique, functions of this tiny span of time 
that God gives us on earth. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, I hate when I hear pastors say, the only thing you can't do in heaven that you can do on earth is lead someone to Christ. Yeah. Nope, I'm pretty sure I can't have a shitty year in heaven either. So it seems that <laughs> there's at least one other thing I can't do in heaven that I can do here, and it's suffer. Yeah. Which, which also m- gives me so much hope for how gracious is, how gracious God is toward me in my doubt in suffering mm-hmm. because he created this unique experience that was for a purpose. Wow. And we get the whole book of Job talking about it. Jeez, yeah. if he doesn't, he's, he's given us tools to know. Yeah. yeah. And he gave yeah. us Psalms where we rail against him for it. And he gives us permission. So yeah, the Bible's full of information on suffering. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, st- you know, I'm still no fan but I think I uh, have more or less accepted the fact that, uh, as M. Scott Peck uh, said in the you know immemorial the, 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 the unforgettable opening line to the road less traveled, life is difficult. Yeah, he got paid for that line. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he goes on. He goes on to say. Uh, he goes on to say. You know, a truth which once accepted he doesn't say exactly the way strangely makes it more bearable so uh yeah okay that's that's better he can get paid for that line okay yeah that's that's fine i feel like there's just dollars sitting around to be picked up with that first line (laughs) i'm on the i'm on the wrong map (laughs) oh my gosh well uh Great, great conversation. Would love to hear more from him. I'll be excited for you to read that second book and tell me all about it. <laughs> and you know what? I'm glad that I am not at this point in some kind of a triumphalist uh, Christian community where I always have to have a positive confession and life has to be wonderful or somehow it's my fault and I don't have enough faith or I'm, I, you know, where I have to live in delusion in order to be a part of the community. Uh I'm because uh, I've been around communities like that. I'm glad I'm not in one today. Yeah, uh, mm. don't I, don't tell the story until it's a testimony yeah. of God's victory. Yeah, yeah. No, you are in a community of of real time confession. That's it, and that that changes our very hope because we don't have to lie and hide. Oh man, I don't have to make God look good. That was a big part of it too uh, for me. Uh, yes, have to make God look good, so we have to make a thousand excuses for Him, and uh, we've got to come up with all kinds of rationalizations and uh, excuses and theologies that give Him lots of doors out. Um, yeah, that 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 wasn't even implicit. That was explicit. Mm-hmm. If you behave like this, it'll make God look bad. Yeah, yeah, I heard that. Yeah. Like, how pathetic must that God be? Like, oh, darn it. I was starting to get my rep back and you uh, screwed it up. Like, what? That's insane. Wow. All right. Well, we got another uh, great episode coming up. I mean, I hope. I'm just assuming we haven't done the interview yet, but I'm yeah. uh, looking forward to it. Are you speaking in faith, man? You're confessing that the next one is going to be great. I might experience suffering. Hard to say. (laughs) Well, until that next time, then. I'm Nate. I'm Eric. And we're your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. 
please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.